Hello, my name is Guy Goodwin-Gill, and I'm a senior research fellow at All Souls College in Oxford and also professor of international refugee law. I used to work for the United Nations many years ago for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. But before that, I also became very, very interested indeed in the international law which governs the movement of people between states. In this series of four lectures, what I want to try to do is to present a picture as clearly as I can of the international legal dimensions to the movement of people. It will necessarily be incomplete, but I will focus on the essential framework and on some of the key aspects, discussing the sovereign competence of states to regulate migration, the question of nationality, the challenges posed by refugees and forced migrants in a globalizing world economy, at the limits of the power of expulsion, and at the standard of treatment due to the non-citizen. When I first began to look at the international law aspects of people moving between states during the late 1960s, it was already a controversial issue, particularly in the United Kingdom. Or perhaps I should say that it was still a controversial issue, for migration and refugee displacement had taken up nearly as much time on the agenda of the United Nations in its early years as international peace and security. In fact, migration has never been far away from the headlines at any time during the last 90 or 100 years. The social aspects of migration, as of change generally in any society, are also serious matters that deserve their own close study. Equally, the broader issues raised by population growth and economic and sustainable development cannot be factored out, at least from a policy perspective. But today, my subject is international law, and today I want to look at the rights of states and the human rights of migrants. Still, I think it is important to have some sense of the background, of the context. So let's look at some of the facts. In the first decade of the 21st century, the business of migration is flourishing, but it can only be understood in the light first of the migration experience of earlier decades, and secondly, against the backdrop of a globalizing economy, a growing world population, and increasing north-south inequality. It was those earlier migrations which established the links of blood, affinity, and culture, which are an inescapable fact in our interconnected world today. But it is perhaps population growth that invites us to ask some of the most serious questions. The population division of the United Nations currently estimates population growth as rising from some 6.7 billion people today to some 9.2 billion in the year 2050, with almost all the growth taking place in the global south. During this same period, the population division projects that the net number of international migrants to the more developed countries in the global north will be in the region of some 103 million. But there is in these figures another constant which I suggest gives pause for thought and reason to review not only the policy applied by states in the matter of migration, but also the future of international law. Two or three years ago, the number of international migrants was estimated at some 191 million, an increase from 76 million in 1960. Dr. Joseph Chami, who was then the director of the Population Division and lead author of the UN's 2002 International Migration Report, 
noted that while migra migrants remained constant as a percentage of world population through the 20th century, their volume had doubled in the last generation. And Demetrius Papadimitriou, the director of the Migration Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., has identified that percentage, that constant percentage of migrants in the world population, as falling within the region of 2.6 to 3.3 percent. But this too is only a part of the picture. Substantial demographic growth is also expected in the developing world, in the percentage of those of working age, with some 45 million people in developing countries entering the job market each year through the next decade. And of course, the other, no less relevant fact is the increasing gap between rich and poor in a world in which it's been estimated that the top 20% of the world's population enjoy a level of income some 150 times higher than that of the bottom 20%. And we may believe the gap is surely widening. Where then does law, where does international law come into the picture, if at all? At one level, perhaps, many states might prefer that it did not and might argue that their sovereign competence entails an absolute discretion over who comes into and who remains on their territory. Yet in principle, of course, sovereignty remains a legal concept, and what is prescribed for sovereignty must be prescribed by law. As the Permanent Court of International Justice said in 1923, wherever its international implications were concerned, jurisdiction which, in principle, belongs solely to the state, is limited by rules of international law. Or as that great international lawyer Hersch Lauterpach said, matters essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of a state do not comprise matters which have become a subject of international obligations or which have become matters of international concern. This in turn raises important questions about the extent to which the movement of people has in fact become a subject of international obligation. We are familiar enough, perhaps, with the principle of non-refoulement, which prohibits the state from sending a person back to persecution, to torture, or to other serious harm. We may also be familiar with family and related rights, some of which at times seem to be factored into the immigration process. But do these examples, do they mean that immigration migration, entry into a state other than that of one's nationality, are properly matters for regulation according to international law. Is there anything, for example, in the principle of freedom of movement? True it is that Vittoria had said that it, and I quote, it was permissible from the beginnings of the world, where everything was in common, for anyone to set forth and travel wheresoever he would. Even so, Statements about the right to move, such as these by the early international lawyers, reflected a very particular perspective, that of the colonial or imperial power capable of moving its people, its settlers, vast distances, and of protecting them as they took over other lands. The transportation and settlement movements to the Americas, Africa, Asia, and Australasia were not matched at the time by movements in the opposite direction and immigration control was not an issue otherwise than occasionally in time of war. But when movement did begin, then the words of others prevailed. 
It has been claimed to be an infringement of the state's right as a sovereign right, for example, as a sovereign state, for example, if its immigration authorities were to be subject to the application of the laws of other countries. And there were good doctrinal historical precedents for such a position. For very early on, that ideal of free movement stated by Vittoria had rapidly been qualified. The 18th century jurist Wolf recognized that there must be limitations. Since nations are free, he said, the decision in these matters must be left to the nations themselves and that decision must be respected. Vattel too, it belongs to the nation to judge whether her circumstances will or will not justify the admission of the foreigner. These were precisely the sentiments that influenced judges in late 19th century Britain when the case came up whether the colonies in Australia were obliged to admit British subjects of Chinese origin. The British court, the Privy Council, upheld the validity of an exclusion statute, saying no authority exists for the proposition that an alien has any such right to enter British territory. A similar approach was adopted by the United States Supreme Court in the case of Nishimura Kyu. It is an accepted maxim of international law, said the court, that every sovereign nation has the power as inherent in sovereignty and essential to its self-preservation to forbid the entrance of foreigners within its dominions or to admit them only in such cases and upon such conditions as it may see fit to prescribe. And moving on into the middle of the last century, we find in a dissenting judgment in the International Court of Justice's case, the Notebone decision, we find Judge Reed saying, when an alien comes to the frontier seeking admission, the state has an unfettered right to refuse it. Today, however, the question of migration is necessarily and inseparably bound to our conception of the nation state in an international system which places special value on sovereignty and independence. As international lawyers, we are taught to think of the state as made up of a territory and a population, and by extension to think of the population as so defined as to differentiate it from the populations of other states. No matter that the dividing lines on the ground, the frontiers, may cut through natural associations of people, people linked by common language, by history, by culture and association. And notwithstanding either, the fact that the variety of local approaches to citizenship may lead to dual and multiple nationality and even to stateless. We are nonetheless reminded as international lawyers that the state in principle enjoys exclusive competence over the territory under its sovereignty and by extension competence to determine who are its nationals and competence to decide who, being non-nationals, should be allowed to enter on what conditions and for how long. And even insofar as the individual may be said to have a right to enter his or her own country, this traditional analysis still sometimes places the issue in an interstate context as a mere corollary of the duty of a state to admit its nationals removed from or unable to secure entry to another country. Nationality, of course, is central to this issue of migration control of immigration law. Nationality is a central issue in the S area of international migration law. Nationality or citizenship 
international law sees little or no difference between the two concepts. Nationality symbolizes or stands for the relationship between the individual and the state. Once, of course, the quality of being a citizen might have stood for subjecthood and allegiance. There may, this may have been displaced by a more modern understanding of the citizen-state relationship, but it is still the bond of nationality, the social fact of attachment, the genuine connection to a given legal society, which entitles the state to exercise diplomatic protection. Now, although, as I've mentioned, nationality is a matter for each state to determine on the basis of its sovereign competence, international law is not irrelevant. For if it is to be recognized by other states, a state's own nationality provisions must conform with the international legal conception of nationality. That is, as the International Court of Justice said in the Notebook case, it must represent the translation into juridical terms of the individual's connection with the state which has made him its national. At this point, the picture is still somewhat unclear. We can see, firstly, how international law goes some way to protect other states' rights by ensuring that nationality is not misused within the field of diplomatic protection. But we can also see how the state's competence in nationality matters, while broad, is not absolute, and it is and can be confined by certain legal requirements. And the, as the general body of international human rights law has developed, so we can begin to see also how the relationship between citizen and state has become more complex, and how matters previously assumed to fall within the reserved domain of domestic jurisdiction have now moved into the area of international legal obligation and international legal concern. Article 15 of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, provides that everyone has the right to a nationality and that no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of their nationality. Article 13 prescribes that everyone has the right to leave any country, including their own, and to return to their country. And as these declared rights have been given concrete content in universal and regional instruments, so we can begin to see how state sovereign powers are perhaps better described analogously to discretionary powers, freedom of decision in matters within domestic jurisdiction, but subject to the evolution of international law and therefore ultimately confined and structured by rules and principles. And just as international law now has something to say about the relationship of the state to its own citizens, so too it may impact on its relationship to the non-national, the candidate for admission, the stranger already in its midst, the refugee in search of protection. For that very distinction between citizen and non-citizen begs a number of questions that commonly arise in the migration context and which resonate especially strongly in the field of international human rights law, particularly in the context of non-discrimination. The principle of non-discrimination and its complements, equality and equality before the law, invite us to ask a number of questions. Exactly what rights and disabilities are relevant and may justifiably be applied in the gap between the citizen and the non-citizen? If an individual has no right to enter any state other than his or her own, 
Can the same be said if he or she has close family members resident in or perhaps citizens of that state? If a non-citizen has spent the greater part of their childhood and working life in a state, can they nevertheless be expelled? Does it make a difference whether that person was lawfully or irregularly present? If a worker in a foreign state loses their job through no fault of their own, can they be required to leave? And what happens to any pension or social security entitlements which they may have acquired? Can irregular migrants be expelled en masse? Exactly how far can a state go to prevent irregular border crossing? Can a state discriminate on racial grounds when deciding whom to admit and whom to deport? Can a state treat migrant workers differently from its own workers, for example, in matters of social security, labor rights, employment conditions? When may a state lawfully expel a non-national? Or are there no limits? Is the legal answer different if expulsion would expose the migrant to ill treatment on return to his or her country of nationality, or indeed to lack of treatment if he or she is sick? What rights do stateless persons have, or refugees, or the victims of trafficking? May the state lawfully detain a non-citizen whom it is unable to remove? Are we then looking at an area of absolute unfettered right, or an area in which there is a subjective faculty of appreciation with only the outer limits of the competence confined and constricted by international law? Or are we perhaps looking at a juridical situation which is somewhere in between. Now, if we are looking to find limits upon sovereign powers, upon sovereign competence, of course, the first place that we want to look is in the field of treaties. Where are they in relation to migration? In fact, there is a long history of bilateral treaties of commerce and establishment which helped to establish certain basic standards. They tended, in practice, to apply to a very limited range of people moving between states, the capital exporters and investors, the traders. But they began to get established in the thinking of states and the acceptance of states certain standards of treatment, particularly in relation to due process. We can also find regional treaties of economic union and cooperation, such as that of the European Community, treaties premised upon the idea of free movement not only of capital, but also of people. And we find similar arrangements promoted more widely by the World Trade Organization, and also within the interstices of bilateral investment treaties, of which there now exist some 3,000. When it comes to the situation of migrant workers, though, rather than investors or traders, we must turn elsewhere to the International Labour Organization, to the United Nations, and to regional organizations. But it is perhaps in another quarter that we will ultimately find the answers that we want to many of the questions about migrant rights, and that is in the field of human rights, where in most cases status as a migrant is not the primary consideration. It does have to be emphasized, however, how long and extensive has been the involvement of the International Labour Organization in attempting to defend the interests of workers employed abroad. The organization has adopted a number of conventions and recommendations to these ends. The Migration for Employment Convention of 1949, the Migrant Workers Supplementary Provisions Convention of 1975 being amongst them. 
But it is also recognized that the number of ratifications of international labor organization instruments remains rather low, and their practical efficacy correspondingly limited. This reluctance of many states to limit their policy options by subscribing formally to the ILO standard-setting process has led to efforts in other international forums, inspired particularly by sending states, by states whose nationals do go abroad to work, and inspired also by a concern with the legal protection of all migrants, whatever their formal status. So already in 1985, the United Nations General Assembly was brought to adopt a declaration on the human rights of individuals who are not citizens of the country in which they live. But when we look at the debates which led to the adoption of this declaration, we find emerging there many differences between the views of sending and receiving states, particularly with respect to minimum rights. When we look also at the history of the UN's 1990 Convention on the Protection of the Rights of All Migrant Workers and Their Families, we find similar differences. This treaty, which finally entered into force just in 2003, has received, what, some 37 ratifications only. It doesn't yet aspire to be seen as the universal instrument of migrant workers' protection. Those differences still remain. Labor importing states, a few noble exceptions apart, were keen to ensure that even a simple General Assembly declaration, such as that adopted in 1985, should not be seen as in any way enhancing the status of the person they termed the unlawful alien. Principles which one might have taken for granted as universal, such as that of equal treatment in the courts, were argued over and ultimately downgraded precisely to allow the conditioning of law and procedure in light of such immigration status as might be conferred in its discretion by the host state. Likewise, despite the well-recognized value, social value of family life and the contribution which family life makes to stability and the successful accommodation of migrants, the principle of family reunion was also closely contested, again by the developed world and in terms with which we are perhaps now all too familiar. The vision here was of a particular cultural concept of the family, spouse and minor or dependent children, which does not recognize other models or the social facts of mutual dependency. It does seem to me, looking at the developments of international migration law, that we have nonetheless moved on from this position, at least in one certain respect. The language of human rights and the universality of its principal provisions speaks to other conclusions. And the UN Commission on Human Rights has brought back this perspective, calling for full respect to the human rights and fundamental freedoms of migrants. And the Commission has identified the problem of vulnerability and the lack of any effective protecting authority as key elements affecting the situation of the migrant. But simultaneously, and rightly in my view, it has recognized and emphasized the existence of a relevant body of international law. The challenge is to secure better compliance. And it's to that end that in 1999, the Commission on Human Rights decided to appoint a special rapporteur on the human rights of migrants to examine how to overcome obstacles to their full and effective protection. In conclusion, let me suggest that what we see when we consider international migration law is a very large picture, one in which we can identify a number of clear, bright elements, rules of international law which say what can and cannot be done. 
But we also see grey areas, cloudy zones, where the outer boundaries of permissible state conduct may be clear, but where otherwise a very wide margin of appreciation continues to exist. Freedom of action. Ben this benefits, which benefits the state seeking to regulate the movement of people across its borders. The frontiers of this reserved domain, however, are not absolute. The picture itself is a moving picture, and standards are still evolving. The direct impact of treaty rules may seem limited, but non-discrimination, equal protection of the law, and due process, among others, are well established. Movement at the regional level and between contiguous states has become freer, though in other respects it has also become more regulated. Visa regimes, passport enhancements, biometric checks and departure controls, often themselves the subject of detailed interstate agreements, mean that controls can and do effectively impede the regular movement of people between countries. The result, ironically but foreseeably, has been growth in irregular migration. Not surprisingly, from regions of under or no employment to countries in both the global north and the global south, with a continuing appetite for skilled and unskilled labour, especially where it's cheap. The migrant is not unprotected, but the law is found in different places, and his or her legal situation will often be contingent on what is demanded and on how the state sees its own interests. There are some seven areas in particular in which we need to consider the different and differing application of international law and international legal standards. Firstly, there is the right of the individual to depart, to leave his or her own country, a right which we've seen is proclaimed in the Universal Declaration. It is recognized in international law. It is regulated, of course, by national and international passport controls. And it is impacted as a matter of practice by visa requirements and carrier sanctions. But there is nonetheless an internationally legal, international legally recognized right at issue. Secondly, there is the right to be admitted to a country other than that of one's nationality. And this is where we see sovereign competence coming very much to the fore. Not necessarily an absolute sovereign competence, because in practice its exercise is subject to bilateral and regional treaty regimes. It is subject to particular legal exceptions, for example exceptions founded in treaty or customary international law and which benefit the family member or the refugee, amongst others. But nonetheless, it is also subject to recognition amongst states of the existence of a wide margin of appreciation on behalf of the state in matters of security and ordre public, which today, of course, includes aspects of health, amongst others. The third question is that of standards of treatment. How is the migrant to be treated in the country in which he has or she has been admitted? This is regulated in part by treaty, by the International Labour Organization conventions I referred to, by the UN Convention, and of course by regional and bilateral arrangements, particularly as regards employment. It is increasingly accepted, although there is still some resistance here, but it is increasingly accepted as a situation that is also governed by international human rights law, by universal and regional treaties, and by customary international law. The distinction between the non-national, the migrant, and the citizen is, for many purposes, irrelevant. The fourth area 
is that of expulsion, which we will be dealing with in more detail later on. But we will see that expulsion is very much a typical discretionary competence, which in which states, in the exercise of which states are recognized as enjoying a considerably wide margin of appreciation. And on which, of course, with a new securitization approach to many issues involving the movement of people between states, we can see security coming very much to the forefront of their mind. But still, we will also see that this, the power to expel the non-citizen is itself confined and structured by international law. It may be governed by particular legal regime, particular treaty regimes, as in the European Union, and it may be restricted by specific obligations which states have, have accepted with regard to refugees and in relation to the non-return of individuals to torture. But it will say also the regime of expulsion is influenced, heavily influenced by regimes of human rights protection, principles which protect the family, which protect acquired rights, which promote and secure protection against ill treatment. It is a contested area, yes, but it is an area in which the impact of legal rules is increasingly felt. Fifthly, there is the issue of return, the right of the individual to return to his or her own country. That right is uncontested for the most part in theory, although in practice it may be difficult to exercise. The individual abroad may find that he or she cannot get the protection of their country of origin, cannot secure the issue of the passport necessary to enable return. This also concerns states, other states, who see the obligation of the state of nationality as encompassing in particular a duty to readmit its citizens. And that too is contested in the relations between states, often for good, sometimes for bad reasons. Sixthly, there is the general issue of management and control. And this raises two important international law elements. The extraterritorial reach of each state's jurisdiction and capacity to enforce. I mentioned early on the processes of interception, which are now engaged in by the European Union, amongst others, in relation to ships and boats on the in the Mediterranean and off the West African coast. This is an area, a recently developing area of state activity, which invites attention to international legal dimensions, questions arising in relation to the law of the sea, rescue at sea, disembarkation, processing and return. That too raises the next question of the extraterritorial reach of each state's international obligations. When a state acts outside its territory to manage or control the movement of people, to what extent is it bound by the obligations, uh, for example, arising in matters of human rights? And finally, seventhly, for the migrant, the migrant worker in particular, remains the question of remedies, an underdeveloped area. There may be remedies available, some of which will be provided locally as a matter of, of constitutional statutory entitlement, or which may be guaranteed by regional arrangements or international arrangements. But here, too, there is a gap in the limitations which have, are exposed in the practices of diplomatic protection a discretionary competence which each state has whether or not to step in on behalf of, his, of its own nationals. There is emerging, and we see this in many parts of the world, a category that I call the new stateless, people who have traveled overseas, abroad to work, but who are then, as it were, written off by their countries of nationality and not wanted or seen as entitled to protection by the states of residence in which they work. And this, I think, we will find out, will be one of the many challenges for the future. Thank you.